Welcome into Outkick the Show. I'm your fearless leader, Clay Travis. I hope all of you, let me adjust the camera here a little bit. I didn't happen to look at it very much. I want to make sure the logo's there because I'm about to talk about Outkick. There we go. Is that all right? Looks spectacular. Let me come down a little bit. All right, that's good, I think. That looks stellar. Um, appreciate all of you watching on YouTube, all of you watching on social media everywhere. I wanted to start off uh, with a thank you that also doubles as a brag, not a humble brag, a brag. Uh, I want to brag on all of our content creators at OutKick uh, and on our editorial team and on the site in general. This September that we just finished, OutKick quadrupled its audience from September of last year. Let me repeat that because it's kind of a staggering number. This is just the website, not countering, counting any of these video views. I'm not counting any of you watching this right now. Just the website itself. We have gone and quadrupled the audience that read OutKick on the internet in September of 22 compared to September of 21. That is a monumental growth. I'm going to share this. I'm going to go write about it on the site in a little bit, so you'll be able to see some of the data underlying it. But we will be, by next year, frankly, if we're not already, one of the five biggest sports sites on the internet. And that is pretty wild to think about. Now, I said sports sites. One of the messy things about the internet and the way they count audience is a lot of these websites roll in like a hundred different websites to try to argue, oh, well, this is our website audience. I'll give you an example. You know the losers at USA Today, the people who called me a right-wing extremist? Uh, Well, for instance, USA Today will say, oh, our USA Today sports audience is massive. But they're combining like 50 different local newspaper sections all together and adding those up as if it's one website audience. Really, it's not, right? It's like, if you're in Nashville, you might go read about the local Nashville team. And if you're in uh, reading the USA Today sports site, you might read about whatever, right? But they, they put it on like 50 different websites, oftentimes the same exact content, and then try to count it multiple times and come out. I'm just using USA Today as an example because they're the ones who called me a right-wing extremist. But this happens on websites all over the internet. So what I'm talking about is like just the website, right? Like you go to outkick.com. You go to, let's say, to be fair, ESPN.com, right? We're going to be a top five website next year. And we are competing with places where they put games on the internet, right? Like we're competing with CBSSports.com. And if you happen to be sitting around at home and you're like, hey, I want to go watch Alabama-Arkansas this past weekend, like, you could literally go watch Alabama-Arkansas on CBSSports.com. Like, we don't have, you got me, right? You got me talking about Alabama-Arkansas, or one of our writers writing about it. We don't have the actual game on our website. Same thing at ESPN, right? Like, hey, you can come on ESPN and watch the actual game. We're competing now with people who are putting actual games on to see who can have the most internet traffic, the most readers. Uh, And we're going to be top five. It's going to be like us, Bleacher Report, 
Uh, you know, I think they got, maybe Bleacher Report has games. I don't know. They got like a billion different websites underneath Bleacher Report now. ESPN, CBS. I mean, this, this is who OutKick is competing with. And we quadrupled, quadrupled our audience over last year. We got a lot of talented people producing a lot of really good content. And we're only just now getting started with everything that we are going to be able and capable of achieving. We're going to be growing a lot more. And again, by next year, I think we'll be top five. We may be top five now if you just said, hey, only one individual website address counts. You don't get to use 50 or 100. I'll use SB Nation as an example. They've got like 100 blogs. And so like SB Nation says, oh, our audience is, yeah, you've got 200 websites that are all rolling together that you're adding up to try to make it look like your audience big. And then there's all sorts of other tricks, right? Like uh, you can put your articles up on the front page of a popular site, all those things. Anyway, I want to say thank you. We are dominating. We are kicking ass to quadruple an audience from September of last year to September of this year is a remarkable achievement. That is a testament to our content creators and to all of you out there that are sharing our content. And I'm just talking about the web. I'm not talking, you know, Tommy Laren does a show for OutKick and I go look at sometimes at the numbers. There's like a million people watching a lot of the videos that she is sharing from outside of that show on Instagram, for instance. I mean, there are millions of people every month watching Tommy's OutKick show that just don't get counted. I don't, I, I don't even know if we're capable of counting all of them. So in addition to what the number we have on OutKick.com, which is relatively easy, it's centralized. We can know exactly how many people come in. Uh, the numbers on our social channels are through the roof. And again, that is a testament to you guys. And it's a testament to what I've been saying for years. OutKick serves the non-woke sports fan. And that's about 80% at least of actual sports fans. And the rest of the sports industry is fighting for that 20% of the woke audience that we're never going to go after because I think, frankly, they're awful human beings. And they're trying to destroy sports and things that we share in America. So OutKick will go after this tiny, small audience, which we call 75 or 80% of Americans. <laughs> it's a pretty good business, and we ain't even seen anything yet. It's only going to grow, but that quadruple uh, is a credit to everybody that we have working on the show, uh, on the site, on the shows, everywhere out there. What you are consuming is being noticed, and we thank you immensely. All right, uh, let's dive into some sports stories here. Uh, and, uh, and, and kind of really, uh, really jump in. And let me tell you first, I want to give you, and I got to pull it up here if I can find it, my starting 11. I think I've got it on my phone already. Um, yeah, here it is. Um, all right. I'm going to run through what we learned in college football over the weekend. I'm also going to tell you some of what we learned in the NFL as we always do on the Monday edition of this program. I am home for this entire week. Uh, I will be on the road in Tuscaloosa for uh, A&M against Alabama this weekend. Looking forward to that, although I think Nick Saban's team is going to run roughshod over A&M this year to get back after the loss that they took. Uh, so that is, uh, that's where I'm going to be this weekend. Next weekend, they just announced it's going to be a CBS game. Uh, we will be back in Knoxville for the biggest game in the SEC, Alabama against Tennessee on October 15th. And then I might as well go ahead and say it. October 22nd, we're doing a special show. I'm going to be hanging out with Luke Bryan, 
uh, country music superstar, and he's going to come on and make some picks with me, and we're going to have a good time, and we're raising charity dollars uh, with Luke Bryan for a pediatric heart-related issue uh, that we did last year. Some of you may remember that. Uh, raised millions of dollars he did uh, at this big charity event that he does, and we helped a small part of that uh, So uh, to help kids with heart-related conditions, babies, in fact, pediatric uh, heart-related conditions. We're going to make, I believe, a big impact there, and we're going to be doing that on the 22nd, all right? Uh, so all of that is coming in this direction. Uh, and before I get into college uh, football for a moment, let me just say this. How about those Braves? Uh, if you are a Mets fan, hashtag 1986, what a beatdown the Braves put on you over the last three days. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. All you needed to do, Mets fans, was win one game. Just don't get swept and you still would have been in a decent position in the NL East. But you went into Truist Park and the Braves whipped that Mets ass. Such that the only way the Mets can win the division now is if they win all three of their games, I believe against the Nats, and if the Braves lose all three against the Marlins. The Braves' magic number is now one because the Braves have the tiebreak now. So they effectively have a two-and-a-half game lead with three to go. I think the Braves will go ahead and close it out uh, with a win in Miami. I believe it's tonight. Uh, and then they will be the number two overall seed in the NL and get a bye. 100 win season. Look, the Mets had a good season. Just didn't have a good enough season. June 1st, they had a 10 and a half game lead in the NL East. And the Braves have now officially caught and passed them. The best, uh, there was a lot of great memes uh, out there on the internet. Great videos. Uh, the best one I thought was the freeze. If you've been to Truist Park, you know the freeze is a former track star and he chases after people when they get a huge head start. Uh, and there was one guy who started to celebrate early, thought that he had won and beaten the freeze and the freeze went running right by him. Uh, that was the Mets. And so the Braves are now official, uh, not officially, but effectively the NL East champs. I watched this game last night. It's why I didn't have a Game of Thrones reaction. And I've been busy this morning chasing down so many different stories. I'm As soon as I finish this show, going to go finish writing my Game of Thrones reaction column. And I'm also going to share the data on how many people are consuming OutKick-related content. But uh, let me give you my OutKick national top 10. This, to me, is what stood out uh, as we uh, watched college football all day. Um, and, uh, and I think, to a large extent, we are now dealing with a through five weeks, pretty reliable top 10. Um, and my top 10 would be this. I've got Alabama now as the best team. I know we have uncertainty about Bryce Young and exactly what's going to happen with his shoulder. Uh, but Alabama got a challenge from Arkansas, then pulled away. Big time playmaking in the running game. We'll see what AM's able to do this weekend. Again, I'll be there in person for that uh, primetime game. But I think Alabama now best team. I've got Ohio State sliding in at the second spot. I dropped Georgia to third. And I dropped Georgia to third because that performance against Missouri in conjunction with what they did against Kent State, the Bulldogs were phenomenal the first three season, three weeks of the season. Destroyed and dismantled Oregon. Destroyed and dismantled South Carolina on the road. Mizzou's not a good football team. And Mizzou had a chance to beat Georgia. 
And Kent State's not that great of a football team. And Kent State played Georgia well. Uh, to me, Georgia dropping them all the way to third. Clemson, credit to the Tigers. Getting a win over NC State. I thought NC State would be competitive. Biggest game for NC State in 47 years. They didn't play well. Uh, they turned the ball over. Couldn't run the football. Uh, credit for Clemson. The moment was too big for NC State. Uh, and they were not able to get a second straight win after winning in double overtime last year. Michigan, I've got it five. Solid, workmanlike drubbing of Iowa. Uh, I'll slide Michigan in at the fifth spot. Oklahoma State, nice road win at Baylor. Mike Gundy, 15th year anniversary of the I'm a man, I'm 40 speak. I got a uh, speech. I've got Oklahoma State at six. Ole Miss, I'll talk a little bit about this in a moment, but I've got Ole Miss at seven. Managed to survive against Kentucky. USC at eight, not sure on USC. We're going to get a good early read on them, or mid-season read, I should say. October 15th, they go to Utah. Be intriguing to see what happens there. I think Utah takes them down. I've got Tennessee at nine. I dropped Tennessee even though they were on their bye week because Pittsburgh lost at home to Georgia Tech, and that was a good win for Tennessee, I thought. We'll see what the Vols do on the road. I can't believe it's been 12 years since Tennessee went on the road against LSU and the Derek Dooley 13 men on the field uh, scenario played out. And then I've got uh, Penn State in the 10 spot. Penn State was not that great against Northwestern. Sean Clifford, a little bit wobbly. That's my top 10 right now, judging everybody based entirely on what's happening on the field. Kansas, believe it or not, at 5-0, and just a little bit outside of my top 10. All right, power rankings in the SEC. This might be the last week of the season where I can do this, but I have every team ranked, and it's a, I'm able to do it in a way where no team is ranked below a team that they beat head-to-head. Five weeks into the season, I think that's probably likely to change quite a bit over the next seven weeks, and we'll have to balance out head-to-head and consider it in part of the overall picture. Uh, but I've got Alabama as the best team in the SEC now. I've got Georgia two. I've got Ole Miss three. Let me just say this. I thought Lane Kiffin was uncharacteristically very conservative with the ex- with the exception of the fact that he went for uh, fourth down and five when he could have kicked a field goal to go up six. And I was really surprised. I still think it was the wrong decision. Kentucky's defense is pretty good. Ole Miss had nothing on that play. You go up six, even if Kentucky comes back down and scores, you can still win the game with a field goal. Now, it worked out for Kentucky, but I think that was the wrong call. Uh, I've got LSU at six. LSU comes back from a 21 to nothing, or sorry, 17 to nothing deficit on the road at Auburn to score the final 21 and win that one. I've got Mississippi State at seven. A big win for Mississippi State. They really whipped Texas A&M, who I have at eight. I had to drop Arkansas all the way down to nine because they lost to Texas A&M, even though that was a game they should have won. Uh, I've got Florida at 10, uh, Auburn at 11, Mizzou at 12, Vanderbilt at 13, and South Carolina at 14. On the Kentucky team that I have right now at five, everyone seems to love Will Levis. I saw Mel Kuyper has him as the second overall most likely draft pick. And there's even right now, you can get Will Levis to be taken number one overall. I just, I'm going to be honest with you. I haven't seen that level of talent from Will Levis. He turned the ball over twice late. Uh, Mississippi State, 
Tennessee, and um, Georgia are the three best teams left on Kentucky's football schedule. I think I would take Will Rogers, Hendon Hooker, and Stetson Bennett all as quarterbacks before I would take Will Levis in college football right now, okay? I'm not sure that Will Levis is a top five guy in the SEC right now. College football quarterbacks. I understand the NFL projects to a different level, but personally, nothing against Will Levis. I I certainly think he's an improvement over a lot of what Kentucky has had in the past. But if you told me right now, hey, Clay, Andre Woodson, who I think is the best quarterback in a long time, Jared Lorenzen, or Will Levis, I think I would take Andre Woodson and Jared Lorenzen both as better college quarterbacks than Will Levis at Kentucky in particular. Again, not trying to take shots at the guy, but to be the second quarterback, according to Mel Kuyper, to come off the board, I just haven't seen that production on the field where I think to myself, oh, this guy deserves to be at the very top of the draft board. As I just said, Mississippi State, I like Will Rogers better in that offense. Uh, And maybe you can say, well, it's about the offense. Understood. I like Hendon Hooker better in the Tennessee offense. And I like Stetson Bennett better in the Georgia offense than I do Will Levis in the Kentucky offense. In fact, I think there's a decent chance that all three of those teams will beat Kentucky. And if you are the second best quarterback in college football available for the draft, you should win all those games, in my opinion. And maybe you're going to be like, well, Will Levis is Jay Cutler. You know, great SEC quarterback on a really inferior SEC team. And the only reason they're even any good is because of him. I'll be honest with you, I haven't seen that. I saw Jay Cutler make throws when he was at Vanderbilt where I thought, my goodness, this dude is a stud. He can really rip it. I haven't seen that with Will Levis. So, uh, and certainly I didn't see it against Ole Miss. Two turnovers, final two plays, you can argue. Maybe, hey, that targeting should have been made. Uh, That call, maybe. Uh, Although when you put yourself airborne, I think it's hard to put on the defender that he needs to know where he's going to be hitting you. That defender's coming from a long way away. And Will Levis went airborne to try to get the first down. Uh, He threw a touchdown pass that potentially could have won the game against Ole Miss. But there was an illegal shift, I think was the call. The receiver was not set. That's on Will Levis. Like, you're in that moment. You've got to look out. That's why it's quarterback position so tough. Make sure that your team is properly aligned and then run the play. Yes, it was a good throw, good catch, but he didn't execute properly. Next play, gets blindside hit, fumbles the football. you got to see that coming, get rid of the football, and live to fight another day. Again, maybe Will Levis is going to beat Mississippi State. Maybe they're going to beat Tennessee. Maybe they're going to beat Georgia, and Kentucky's going to go 11-1, and and Will Levis is going to play amazing. To me, he feels like the most overrated quarterback that I have seen in the SEC in a very long time relative to a guy like Mel Kuyper saying he's going to be the second quarterback off the board. I don't see him as Bryce Young. I certainly don't see him as C.J. Stroud. I don't even see him as Hendon Hooker, Will Rogers, or Stetson Bennett in terms of the context of the offense in which he plays in the SEC. And right after that, we'll continue the discussion. But first, a momentary break. Um, How about Tua? Speaking of good quarterbacks in the SEC. I was at Buck Sexton's engagement party on Thursday night, so I wasn't watching live for the game against the Bengals. Uh, Certainly, I've seen it since. And I talked about this this morning on Fox News. 
The challenge as it pertains to player health is that every player, almost to a man, will lie and try to get back into the game if they can, even if they don't feel 100% in their head. They will. So the challenge that the NFL has and the challenge that the NFLPA has is you are dealing with guys that are such gladiators, that are such warriors, that they will, if they can, fake their way back out onto the field even though they may not be healthy enough to be there. And it can be both mental, it can be shoulder, it can be legs. Guys will try and get back out onto the field if they can. So I think that's certainly what is likely at play here for Tua. Coaches are busy. A lot of times there's people who say, how in the world could a coach let this happen? I I don't blame coaches when it comes to in-game health situations. They don't know, right? First of all, they're not doctors. Secondly, they're trying to manage so many different things that are going on on their headset. Typically, they are going to hear from medical staff the guy can go or he can't, and they are then going to rely on that advice. So I know there's people out there who are coming after Dolphins coach Mike McDaniel saying, oh, how in the world could he let this happen? Come on. Anyone who has ever stood on a sideline for a major college football or NFL game, and I've been fortunate to do both, knows how chaotic it is for a head coach. So the idea that the head coach is going to know every little nuance of an injury is not at play. Heck, if you've been on the sideline for a big high school game, you know how challenging it is in high school as well. So the NFL's in a tough spot to try to figure out a protocol that can make sense that the players aren't going to take advantage of. That is the biggest challenge here. Certainly what everybody wants is for guys that are injured or unhealthy, and especially if that injury puts them at much greater risk in the next game, we hope that that is not going to ever be an issue. Um, And I think the NFL has a challenging job, but I'm not of the opinion that the NFL is filled with awful doctors and awful human beings, and I understand everybody's trying to rip everybody else over this. I think everybody's trying to get to the right result, I think there is just a challenge sometimes in getting to that right result. Uh, And I believe it's already been announced that Tua is still in concussion protocol and will not be back until uh, at least week after this one. Also, certainly, uh, there should be an investigation to determine whether the accurate and adequate medical procedures were followed. And if they weren't, what needs to happen going forward? But I actually am not of the opinion that there's some great villain here and that you have to completely slam all of the protocols and processes in place. I think what's going on here is players want to play, and they will try and fight their way back on the field if they can. Um, want to tee off here. Yesterday in uh, the... Well, let me go to the NFL. Let me go to the NFL and give you some reactions based on all the NFL games that I watched yesterday. We used to do a rapid fire. If you listen to my old uh, college uh, college football NFL Outkick the Coverage show, every Monday we would come on and do a rapid-fire analysis of everything that took place. Nice win for the Vikings, so I'm going to give a little bit of a take on every game that took place rapid-fire here. Uh, Vikings, good uh, way to survive on the road in London against the Saints to get to 3-1. and one. Uh, Kirk Cousins, Saint, and the Vikings came out and lost week one. Everybody overreacts overwhelmingly to what happens in week one, and then we get a long time to sit back and decide whether or not 
Uh, those overreactions were justified. Uh, the Vikings, Kirk Cousins gets the dub, uh, and his team is up to 3-1. and one. Looks pretty solid in the NFC North. Falcons, start off 0-2, come back and win two in a row. Look, the Falcons, crazily enough, could be 4-0, right? I mean, they could have won all four games that they have played. They're now back to 2-2, two and two, get the win over the Browns. Congrats to the Falcons fighting their way back, Arthur Smith and company. Cowboys, got to give a shout-out. Cooper Rush, three straight wins after Dak went down. I don't think very many Cowboy fans expected that we would be sitting here at 3-1 and one with the Cowboys. No ill effects from Dak not being on the field. Cooper Rush undefeated this year. Get another win. Commanders are bad. Carson Wentz feels like his era as a starting quarterback is basically done. Seahawks went on the road. Entertaining. Best game of the weekend. 48-45. Got the win over uh, the Lions. Pete Carroll's team gets back to 2-2. Two and two. Titans. My Titans. Got up 24-3. They can't score in the second half. They managed to hold on. Got a lot of turnovers. Defensively made enough plays to get past Matt Ryan and the Colts. Huge win for the Titans. Titans are back to 2-2 two and two after starting 0-2. Could get a win over the Commanders in Washington. Small favorites coming up this weekend and would be 3-2 and two at the bye week. Don't think the Titans are very good. Don't think the Colts are that good. Uh, but the AFC South home playoff bid. Titans going for their third straight. Now the Titans are an even favorite, I believe, if I saw correctly, uh, against, believe it or not, the Jacksonville Jaguars. Giants, 3-1. and one. Titans would be 3-1 and one if they could have made a field goal instead. Giants take down the Bears, get to 3-1. and one. Eagles, 4-0. Jalen Hurts looks like he might be an MVP candidate if he can stay safe. Jaguars were up 14-0. Eagles came storming back. Jags fans still have to be really excited to be 2-2, two and two, but not as excited as Eagles fans are to be sitting at 4-0 as, again, I got to say, Jalen Hurts has been, so far, the story of the season. Even though he was not great, he has been pretty outstanding, and A.J. Brown has been a phenomenal in, uh, addition to that Eagles team. Jets, Zach Wilson comes back, gets the start. Takes down the Steelers. They go to Kenny Pickett. I think the Steelers are in a rebuilding year. We'll see how good Kenny Pickett is. Uh, but Mike Tomlin's squad does not look very good. In fact, probably is the worst team, believe it or not, in the AFC North uh, this year uh, as you look at that entire division. Bills come back from 17-point deficit. Tough loss on the road against the Dolphins. They gut one out against the Ravens. Bills to 3-1. to one, Ravens to 2-2. Two and two. This feels like a win that may matter a great deal come the end of the year as it pertains to who might have home field advantage. Chargers hang on against the Texans. Texans remain winless. Chargers bounce back from a throttling that they got from the Jags at home. Uh, Cardinals get past the Panthers. Packers, look, Bill Belichick, let's be honest here. Bill Belichick, without Tom Brady, has a losing record as a head coach. Bill Belichick looks like, he looked like an average coach before he had Brady. He looks like an average coach now without Brady. We know he's a great coach. Quarterbacks matter more than coaches in the NFL. This has been driven home immensely by the drop-off we've seen at the Patriots ever since Tom Brady left. Raiders get the win over the Broncos. Every team in the NFL now has won. Bronco offense still not where it needs to be, sitting at 2-2 two and two with Russell Wilson and the Chiefs go down to Tampa Bay and Patrick Mahomes puts it on Tom Brady and company. They got up big and they continued to cruise throughout. Chiefs are 3-1. and one. Feels like we're headed for 
an AFC Championship showdown between Mahomes and Josh Allen. Two best quarterbacks, two best teams. That feels like where the AFC is headed. Uh, and Brady and the Bucks, big numbers, but not enough uh, as they fall to two and two. All right, that's my quick analysis in every NFL game. Like many of you, I spend almost all Sunday watching the NFL. Uh, Hurricane has gone political. Ron DeSantis getting ripped because people did not leave Lee County, which is where Fort Myers is, early enough. This is crazy. And I told you that it was going to happen, that this was going to turn into a political issue. And what did I mean by this is going to turn into a political issue? Poll came out today. Ron DeSantis is up eight points. And in that eight-point lead uh, is something that's pretty significant, uh, maybe one of the biggest wins that has ever happened for a Florida Republican. Remember, DeSantis only won by 30 points the first time through. And so what we are seeing is a massive attack on Ron DeSantis, Hail Mary, desperation to try and take him out. And so I want to make sure that I give you the right website and uh, not political at all. You can donate to the Florida Disaster Fund by going to volunteerflorida.org, all right? Volunteerflorida.org. I shared that website on my Twitter feed if you want to go and help out. I've got a place in Florida. I have donated. I said today on the Clay and Buck show that Buck Sexton and myself would be going down to the Fort Myers area where we have a big affiliate in Southwest Florida helping to raise funds. We've done it before. After Hurricane Michael hit, we sold a lot of these individual Florida shirts uh, in the Outkick logo style. I think you guys can see these and made a donation to uh, hurricane relief after Hurricane Michael hit the panhandle near where I'll be next week, where I spend a lot of time. Um, and so we donated uh, and uh, helped out four years ago. We are going to donate both time and money again, and our radio airwaves uh, will go down to Florida and help out uh, once it is calm enough for Fort Myers to feel like, hey, we're not making things more challenging by trying to do an event while they are attempting to get everything rebuilt. So, don't allow this to be political. Don't allow Kamala Harris, who feels like every time she opens her mouth, her political career is over. Did you say where Kamala Harris said that said that hurricane recovery should be based on the color of your skin, basically equity and race-related concerns, as opposed to the way that every national uh, natural disaster should be handled, which is people with the most at risk, regardless white, black, Asian, Hispanic, should receive the most state and federal support. Uh, and people who are uh, the least at risk should receive the least, right? That's the way we respond to disasters. Safe lives first, property second, regardless of who is involved from a race perspective. Shame on Kamala Harris and everybody else who is trying to use this uh, hurricane to attack Ron DeSantis. Let's raise money and get things back as fast as we can in Southwest Florida after this devastating hurricane. Um, Herschel, speaking of desperate attacks, you know Herschel is going to win in Georgia. We're 36 days from the official midterm election. Herschel Walker in a tight race against uh, Raphael Warnock, the current sitting senator from Georgia. And front page article in the New York Times, a white guy went to Wrightsville, Georgia, where Herschel Walker is from, and argued that Herschel Walker was not black enough to be representing the state of Georgia. Let me repeat that. A white guy from the New York Times went to Herschel Walker's hometown of Wrightsville, Georgia, and wrote an article on the front page of the New York Times 
arguing that Herschel Walker was not black enough to be the Senate representative for the state of Georgia. White guy, New York Times, left wing. This is what racial paternalism is. Powerful, rich, well-connected white people in left-wing outlets tell black people and Hispanic people and Asian people what they are allowed to believe because of their identity. I got a crazy idea. I think everybody, regardless of what their background is, should stand as an individual and make their own individual decisions for all aspects of their life. I don't think you should make a choice based on whether you are black, white, Asian, Hispanic. I think that you should make a choice based on what you believe to be true. And the, and the reality is white people get this luxury, right? White people are allowed to have any political opinions we want on the planet. And nobody says, oh, that white guy has to believe X or has to believe Y. That's the same freedom I want for everybody. I want for everyone to be judged as individuals, not based on what their race is. And it's the height of arrogance for a white left-winger at the New York Times to be lecturing Herschel Walker that he's not black enough. And frankly, he's just taking the lead of President Joe Biden, who spent years basically arguing this exact thing. It's embarrassing, and it needs to change. And I think Herschel Walker being elected as the next senator from Georgia is going to help to make sure that those things change. Finally, I saw this and I couldn't, I couldn't stop laughing about it. We got a story up about it at Alco, or I've got two more stories, actually. Uh, there's this crazy story right now. Uh, well, let me go to this crazy story last, this bros movie. I want to talk about Tiffany Smiley for a minute. Um, there are a couple of races out on the West Coast, in the Pacific Northwest, that have got Democrats really, really nervous. One of them is Tiffany Smiley, who is running for the Senate from Washington. She's a mom. She's married to a veteran who has lost his eyesight in service for the country. Uh, Years ago, back before everybody went crazy, the Seattle Seahawks honored this veteran by allowing him to be the 12th man at their stadium back in 2014. Um, And so he's a Seahawks fan. Most people, I know this is going to shock people, and I understand some of you are still upset and like, oh, the NFL's too political. Like, I refuse to watch. I'm not that guy, all right? I watch the games. And uh, Tiffany Smiley did a television commercial talking about how expensive inflation was for the average American family. And there was a short segment featuring her husband who was wearing a Seahawks jersey. You would only know it's a Seahawks jersey if you are a diehard Seahawks fan. You wouldn't really know what he's wearing otherwise. There's no logo of visible. It's just the colors, right, of a Seahawks jersey. He's on for like two seconds talking about how expensive beer has gotten uh, as there's a football game purportedly playing in the background of the television. Seahawks sent a letter to Tiffany Smiley's campaign saying you have to take down any possibility of this Seahawks jersey being in your commercial. Now, the Seahawks haven't done the same thing to left-wing political uh, candidates. In fact, there are examples out there of people who are wearing Seahawks jerseys advocating for left-wing causes. Seahawks haven't sent cease and desist letters to them. They did it because Tiffany Smiley's a Republican and because there are, they are afraid that Patty Murray, who has represented Washington for 30 years, is going to lose this race. I think it's going to be close. And I think the Seahawks should be ashamed and embarrassed of themselves. Everyone is smart enough to understand that 
People are of all different political persuasions root for sports teams. The logo isn't even visible. I don't understand how in the world the Seahawks made this decision. I guarantee you this is a poor choice. But I would bet to you, if I had to pick, I would bet Patty Murray's left-wing advisors got to the Seahawks and said, you need to make them take down any reference to the Seahawks. Same thing happened with Starbucks. Same thing happened with the Seattle Times. All within a short period of time. It's a calculated attack on Tiffany Smiley. And I think the Seahawks should frankly be embarrassed and ashamed, especially because they're not applying the same political standard. But come on, who is dumb enough to think that because uh, somebody is wearing a shirt, that means that they are being endorsed by the product that they're wearing on the shirt? Like, right? I mean, this is crazy. Like, I got to be honest, we've sold lots of gear over the years. If somebody wore an OutKick shirt in a video, I wouldn't demand that they take it down. I'd probably just tweet uh, whether they were Democrat or Republican. I, I don't even know that I would care. I think I'd kind of be honored, right? Um, but if they were trying to claim, oh, Clay Travis has endorsed me or something like that, maybe I would do it. But I don't think anybody's dumb enough to think that because a guy's watching a, uh, wearing a jersey watching a football game that that means the team has endorsed him. So shame on the Seahawks. This is embarrassing for them. And if you wondered whether Tiffany Smiley was in a close race or not, there's the answer. Seattle and Portland have so fallen apart that I think Christine Drazen is going to win the Oregon governor's race. She's a mom running in Oregon. I think she's going to win first Republican to be elected since the 1980s in Oregon. And I think Tiffany Smiley's got a good chance of knocking out Patty Murray just based on how desperate they're getting in Washington. The reason they're going to win is because those places have gone crazy. Had to avoid cursing there. They have gone absolutely insane when it comes to crime. You're not safe in Washington State, uh, certainly not in Seattle, and you're not safe in Portland at all. Crime rate has skyrocketed there because, why? Because of Democrat policies that have defunded police and allowed criminals back out on the streets. Finally, and this is a little bit funny, there's evidently a romantic comedy called Bros about two gay guys. And they did all the polling and everything else. And people in New York and L.A. are like, you know what mainstream America really is demanding? They want a romantic comedy about a gay male couple. Straight people are going to love this. That's what they said in New York and L.A. Now, I'm not an expert in couples, right? I've been married for almost 20 years. Uh, But the reason why romantic comedies work for straight people is because usually, this is a general analysis, Men like the humor in romantic comedies and women like the romance. Now, sometimes men like the romance and women like the comedies more. You understand how couples work. Everybody is different. But the reason why the romantic comedy typically does well is because couples that are dating and couples that are married see in themselves some form of reflection in the romantic comedy. They get to go laugh and then they get to hug and kiss and everybody's happy at the end of a romantic comedy because we know everybody rides off into the sunset and lives happily thereafter. Okay, That's that's the conceit of the romantic comedy. But generally speaking, romantic comedies are made up of heterosexual couples because most couples are heterosexual, right? Most people, if you're a guy, you typically are going to end up with a woman. And if you are a woman, you typically are going to end up with a guy. 
That doesn't mean you have to. If you decide you like girls and you're a girl, go for it. Live your lives happily. If you're a dude and you like dudes, go for it. Live your lives happily. But most people go to the movies to see a reflection of their own relationship. And so I'm not at all surprised. I would think gay people might be saying, hey, finally we've got a romantic comedy that represents us. I want to make sure I go see this. And I hope that gay people enjoyed this movie, bros. But most heterosexual people are not homophobic if they would prefer to see a romantic comedy that involves a man and a woman. Now, I don't even, I don't go see these movies, romantic comedies in a theater anyway. I've been married almost 20 years. I don't remember the last romantic comedy I went to see with my wife. I think there are lots of men out there and women who are like, yeah, I just, I got limited amount of time. I'm going to go watch Top Gun. I'm going to stay home and watch House of the Dragon. I don't want to go watch a romantic comedy at all. But it's really crazy to me that it would be considered homophobic because there weren't enough heterosexual couples that went to go watch a romantic comedy about gay dudes. Like, I, this seems like imminently expected to me. Most people watch romantic comedy specifically because they see their own relationship there. Now, you can argue, well, you should see your relationship with those uh, two gay dudes. But I don't think most people are building their Saturday night around going to watch that romantic comedy. Most people aren't going to theaters, period. But if they're going, they're not going to go watch this. It's not homophobia for romantic comedies starring heterosexual people to do better than romantic comedies starring gay people. Gay people should all go see it if it's so great. And if the movie is so transcendent, maybe it will do well no matter what. Certainly we have ex- uh, have examples of that. But the idea that it's homophobic because heterosexual people would rather go see a romantic comedy starring heterosexual people is kind of crazy to me. This is the world we live in. I am Clay Travis. DBAP, unless you need to SBAP. Thank you again for making this the greatest month in OutKick history and allowing our audience to quadruple itself. This has been OutKick the Show. DBAP, unless you need to SBAP.